0: Well, peace be with you. Destruction. Do you want to experience destruction? Do you want to experience destruction in your family? Do you want to experience destruction uh, uh, among your friends? Do you want to experience destruction at work or at school? Do you want to experience destruction as it relates to your reputation or legacy uh, or even your own soul? Do you want to experience destruction today, or, or, or maybe uh, some chapter in your future that is yet to be? Well, if the answer is no, uh, then I think we are wise to pay attention to Proverbs 16:18, which says that pride goes before destruction next slide and a haughty spirit before a fall. So a haughty spirit means an arrogant spirit. So if we want to avoid destruction, we need to avoid pride, ego, uh, and arrogance, an arrogant spirit which goes before a fall, destruction, right? So uh, Joel Beeky and Michael Reeves say this, this is, pride seeks to dethrone God and enthrone self. So think of your own heart and your mind. Pride seeks to dethrone God at the very center as your king and as your authority, And instead, put your own selfish, me-first approach to life on that very same throne. So it's kind of a change in whoever is enthroned and the very intimate parts within you, right? Pride seeks to dethrone God and enthrone self. Now, why have I started like this? It's because we're going through uh, the book of Esther. And this has really been a fascinating story so far. Today, we're going through chapters 5 to 7. And I'll give a bit of a recap shortly for those of you who maybe missed uh, the last two weeks. Uh, But today we come across the story of of the wicked villain, Haman, and he actually is a real-life demonstration, illustration of this point. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty, arrogant spirit before a fall, namely his. And so we're going to see that, and we're going to learn about that, but not only are we going to look at his example, we're also going to ask, okay, what can we learn from this so that we avoid destruction and rather flourish with the life God intends for us? We want to flourish with the life God intends to us. We don't want to experience destruction, right? So as we go through the text, I encourage you to take note of anything that is a sign or evidence of Haman's pride and arrogance, okay? Maybe you've got a Bible you want to underline or highlight. Maybe you've got the Westminster Church app. Maybe you just want to make a mental note. Okay, that's evidence. That's a sign of Haman's downfall. Uh, of his pride. Okay, so quick recap uh, of the first four chapters. So we began, as you recall, in the ancient Persian court under King Ahasuerus in the fifth century, also called King Xerxes. After a long and surely torturous process, Esther, a young Jewish woman, was promoted to queen. Esther was the adoptive daughter of a man named Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai uncovered a plot to assassinate. The king, as you recall. Uh, one day the king makes a law that people should bow to someone who he has promoted to the second in command uh, in the kingdom, uh, a man named Haman. Uh, turns out that the ancestors of Haman and uh, Esther's adoptive father Mordecai are uh, ancient enemies, right? So Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. Uh, Haman devises a plot to kill not only uh, Mordecai, but all Jews. And he does this by getting the very powerful, influential, and impressionable King Ahasuerus to pass a law to this effect. Mordecai urges Esther to use her influential position as queen to get the king to change his mind. But this will be a risky business because you cannot go to the king unless he invites you. But she agrees. She calls for a fast for three days and nights Uh, in the lead-up to her approach to the king. And in an act of great courage, she says, if I perish... I perish. So she was an example to us of courage. So just before we jump into the text, I want to show you an ancient uh, picture, uh, sculpture on a wall. Now, the writing is small, so I'll tell uh, you what it is. This is a wall carving depicting King Darius of Persia on his throne. This was the father of Ahasuerus, okay? So Darius is on the throne, uh, who is behind the throne. Uh, Sorry, Ahasuerus is behind the throne since he is next in line to the king. So the person standing right behind the king uh, will be king one day. That's Ahasuerus, who is is the king in the book of Esther. Uh, Note that Darius is holding that royal scepter, right? So if he points it to you, you may come and people approach the throne with reverence. Okay, uh, I just thought that was a really kind of fascinating piece from, from archaeology and history. So uh, that said, let us open our Bibles to Esther chapter 5, uh, reading from the ESV. Let's jump right into this very uh, compelling story. On the third day, you know, the third day, remember the three days of the fast? On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. In front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Now, pause. We know the end of the story. And so we're like, oh, it's going to work out. But we have to recall that in that moment, Esther did not know. And so think of how scared she must have been right in this very moment. Like this This could be her last day on earth. Karen Jobs, in her commentary, says that the threat of death and the hope of life are equally present. Threat of death, hope of life, equally present in this moment. Verse 2, And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. Big relief, exhale. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom." Now, this is not literal. This is an expression. It comes up, uh, also, by the way, King Herod, if this sounds familiar, King Herod uses this in the New Testament. It basically communicates, I'm in a generous mood, right? It communicates his generosity. Verse 4, and Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had Uh, prepared. Now, um, why this feast? So we don't really know. Remember that Esther has fasted and prayed for three days, as have the other Jews in Susa and her own maids. So maybe this is a part of the the plan that God has revealed to her. Uh, Either case, verse 6, "...and they were drinking wine after the feast as they were doing so. The king said to Esther, "'What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled.'" Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now again, why a second feast? Like the right there, this is the moment. So again, we don't know, we're not told her thoughts. At the same time, Uh, Maybe this is a part of the discernment that she has had while she was fasting and praying. That's quite possible. It may be the case that she is here employing an ancient custom in Persia of asking a small request, that granting you to a, a slightly bigger request and then to a third. So she might be engaging in this ancient practice of building up to another request. We don't totally know. However, it buys time. And time is so incredibly important to the unfolding of the plot as we will discover Verse 9, and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor. Okay, remember how I said keep track of signs or evidences of Haman's pride? And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. Tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows, 50 cubits high, be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully to the king, with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Now, a quick note historically. So when we hear gallows today, we think like noose and stuff. That's not what's envisioned here. Really, a gallows in this context is simply a very tall pole and the person is bloodily impaled on the pole. And if it's high, it's a part of the function is to well, not only to kill the person, but it's a public shaming. So other people can see, hey, look at, look at this consequence that will, that will happen uh, to you. So um, the height, what we would say today is 75 feet. That is so high, right? That is so, so high. Now, is it just 75 feet on its own? It might be on a hill and the total height is 75 feet. We don't know. But I think here we're supposed to see something else that's going on. The height of the gallows is the height of Haman's pride. Okay, look at how tall it is. The stature of the gallows is the stature, the measure of his own pride. Okay, chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before him, for the king. He's trying to lull himself to sleep with the royal records, right? And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Okay, so he's, oh right, there was that assassination plot way back that we learned about at the end of chapter 2 that Mordecai helped foil. Verse 3, and the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Now, when you track along with the chronology of the story, that was five years ago. Five years ago, Mordecai saved the king's life from this assassination attempt, and nothing has been done to thank him. And the king said, who is in the court? He hears something. Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that that he had prepared for him. What timing. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, now here we're getting into Haman's thoughts, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be broad, which the king has worn. And the horse and the king that the king is ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, "Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor." Okay, that's some pretty amazing honoring going on. And of course, he thinks it's going to happen to him. Now, why does he request these specific things? Remember, he's the second uh, in command, second most powerful person in the kingdom. What else could he have other than being king? So he chooses things that will align him most intimately, most closely, most personal with kingship himself. His crown, his robes, the horse that he rides on. He is trying to identify himself with the honor and prestige of the king down to a T. It's everything he can do other than be the king himself. Then the king said to Haman, verse 10, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Surely Haman is seething at this point. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the men, whom the king delights to honor. Okay, I'm sure he acted, you know, much more. I'm sure he acted, you know, as he should have, but my tone of voice there was to show you surely what was in his heart. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered, Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before him you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him but will surely fall before him. Oh, thanks for the support. Uh, could you have told me that ahead of time? While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Chapter 7. Okay, I want to say a word about uh, the timing here. Remember, we're like, okay, what's the deal with the feast and then the second feast? We've been going through this series and I've been asking us to think about um, the importance of providence and the timing. This is God's invisible hand, right? Working through all the details. Just think of all the things that have happened, okay? Providence. There was a delay with the second banquet, the king just so happened to not be able to fall asleep. Coincidence? Just so happened that he had the royal records read. Just so happened that they came across the story of Mordecai. Uh, Just so happened that that Haman later left and he went by Mordecai and became enraged that he would not bow. Just so happened that he had time to build the gala. Just so happened that the king was thinking about rewarding Mordecai just when Haman came in the gate. Coincidence. All the timing, it's coming together. All right, chapter 7, so the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish. And my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then king Ahasuerus said to queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman... Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen, and the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. And Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Okay, so this is the moment. It's been revealed about Haman. Now, what is going on? So why does the king go out into the garden? Maybe it's just to compose himself. Maybe he realizes that he himself has been complicit and tricked into this law, right? He's the one who kind of put his signet ring on on the thing. So he knows that. Um, Maybe he's just wondering what to do. If this is a law which is apparently irrevocable, maybe he's thinking, how do I get out of this? Who knows? He's been drinking like since the story began, so maybe he just wants to clear his head. We don't know. And then what happens is Haman stays behind to beg for his life. He knows that the tables are turned. And notice the irony. I just think this is a, a beautiful kind of subtle thing in the story, irony. Esther's uh, adoptive father, Mordecai, would not humble himself before Haman. And now, Haman is humbling himself before this young Jewish girl. Notice the, the ironic reversal there. He's begging. He, he, he's on his knees for his life. okay. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, "'Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house?' And the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Now he's pleading, he says, what's going on here? Now we know from from earlier, like the verse earlier, that he's begging for his life, but the king doesn't know that necessarily, so maybe there's some moral ambiguity in his mind, okay, maybe I'm complicit in this edict that I shouldn't have signed, but now all ambiguity is, is done. He sees what's going on here. He's like, okay, this this is over the line. I can kill the guy for this. Now, what we need to know is in the ancient world, in the court of um, the Persian kings, uh, unless you were some of the official caretakers, you could not be in the presence of the queen if the king was not there. And so as soon as the king leaves, everyone else should leave. And he doesn't do that. He goes towards her. Not only that, but even if the king is present, get this, even if the king is present, you cannot take... Uh, You cannot walk within seven steps of the queen. So he transgresses that. He's breaking all the rules. Things are really going downhill fast uh, for Haman, okay? Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, Then the wrath of the king abated. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, we started by looking at Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before uh, a fall, or an arrogant spirit, right? And our question was not only can we learn what can we learn from the example of this taking shape in Haman's life, but how can we avoid destruction? Um, but not only that, but flourish for the life God intends for us, okay? So we're going to look at uh, three points. And the first is this. It's a very honest word. There's a little bit of Haman in all of us. So a little bit of Haman in all of us, right? So I asked you to look for signs or evidences of Haman's pride. And you've been taking note. Here are a, a couple. Chapter 5, verse 9. He was angry that Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. Verse 11, he recounted the splendor of his riches, the number of sons, his promotions, how he advanced more than others. Verse 12, he was happy that only he was, inv- only he was invited to the banquet. Verse 13, he was not able to enjoy his blessings because of someone else. Verse 14, he planned to kill someone for not bowing to him. Chapter 6, verse 6, he assumed that no one else could be honored more than him. He thought too highly of himself He thought too highly of himself, and we need this reminder because there are times when that can happen to us as well, and we look at a story like this, we think, well, maybe there's a bit of Haman in all of us. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. We have all, at certain points in thoughts, word, or deed, had a me-first approach that we know best. Other people need to go after us, and when we do that, there's a little bit of Haman within us. I think we need the reminder because we live in a time of, of false positivity, right? False positivity. You are perfect just the way you are. No, we're not. This is, this is the main part of the problem. We're not perfect just the way we are. Theologian Don Carson says when you look at you know, the statements by the Apostle Paul through the New Testament, what you find is Paul, Paul was concerned that people thought too much of him, not too little, He had a grasp of reality. He was concerned that people thought too much of him. J.A. Packer, the theologian, says this. He says, Christians grow greater by growing smaller. That is so, so important. Now, what did Haman think? Haman thought it was important to grow greater by, you know, Influence and being first and other people bowing to him and and him getting his way all the time and just being right regardless of whether or not he was actually right. But no, it's not, it doesn't work like that in God's eyes. Christians grow greater by growing smaller, and that's a statement about humility. Do I recognize my need for grace? Do I recognize that my rightness with God is based on what Christ has done, not what I have done, that, that I am fundamentally a servant in this world. We grow greater by growing smaller. In the words of Jesus from Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so Haman is a word of caution to us. Are there times when we need to be right? When we love to be right more than what is actually right? There are times when we love to be right more than what is actually right. There are times when we put ourselves first when the will of God should be first. Here's the second. Satan's greatest ally is ego. Pride is the primary sin. All other sin derives from pride, ego, and arrogance, right? So our God-resisting egos can be a tool of the enemy. If pride is really dethroning God in our hearts and minds and enthroning the self... If that's what ego and that—that's exactly what Satan wants because that is able, he's able to get his agenda within us if we're just being selfish all the time, as opposed to being Christ-like all the time, right? So think of a spy in a war. So a spy in a war, and they're there, and, and, and the other side thinks that that spy is one of them, but the spy is really working for the other side, taking information, and and, and helping who seems to be the enemy. Right. And so, if you think of that. Perhaps the enemy, capital E, enemy, is having some success with a spy on our insides named Ego working against us, not for us. Third, be humble at the foot of a love-soaked cross. Now, two wise and faithful men were being interviewed. And these were men, and they had spent years of teaching and servanthood, and uh, they'd given to charitable causes, and so they were quite well-known Had a great reputation for their servanthood, and they were just those people who were salt of the earth down to earth that didn't let it get to them. And uh, the interviewer asked them, How is it that you've been able to stay humble and not become like proud and, and arrogant over the years? And this is what he said one of them said, How on earth can anyone be arrogant when standing beside the cross? How can you be arrogant when standing beside the cross? God himself in the person of Christ, Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, humbles himself, taking the form of a servant, uh, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paying the price for our sin that you and I deserve to be up there. He goes there in our place, giving us reconciliation, forgiveness, peace, and eternity with God. And that is based not on how great we are, but on how great he is. How can, when we are right with God, not based on our moral performance, but on the sacrifice of Jesus as a servant for us, how can we be proud or arrogant through life when that is our reality? Sam Albury has a wonderful word, uh, and and he comments on the beauty of this, which leads us into a greater trust. He says, God knows me more than I know myself. God loves me more than I love myself. God is more committed to my ultimate joy than I am, so I can trust him. Say it with me. God knows me more than I know myself. God loves me more than I love myself. God is more committed to my ultimate joy than I am, so I can trust him. Recap there's a little bit of Haman in all of us. Satan's greatest ally is ego. Be humble at the foot of a love soaked cross. Do you want to avoid destruction? I do. If so, we should heed the words of Proverbs sixteen eighteen, pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Amen.